Turn your Bibles again to the Lucan Gospel, the 11th chapter. My favorite story involving prayer involves well-known Christian communicator, Tony Campalo. One day he was invited to preach at a Pentecostal college located near his home. When he arrived for the chapel service, he was escorted to the back where eight men laid hands on him and prayed for him, getting ready for the chapel service. But there was one guy who spent a long time praying about something that had nothing at all to do with the upcoming chapel service. The guy, when it was his turn to pray, kept praying about a friend named Charlie. Lord, you know Charlie. You know, Charlie, Lord, the one that lives a mile down the road in the silver trailer. You know, Lord, the one that's on the right-hand side of the road. And the more he talked about Charlie on and on, the more the men got weary, sort of leaned on the Campalo's head. And he said, I was thinking, cut it out, fellow. Do you think God said, give me that address one more time? You know, Lord, you know, Charlie. Repeat again in that silver trailer mile down the road on the right hand side and on and on he went lord you know charlie told me this morning he's about to leave his wife and his children i need you to intervene and do something and stop charlie from abandoning his family and man he went on and on about charlie and the men leaned more and more on Campalo, and finally it was over and Tony Campalo went to preach the chapel service, and when it was over, he got in his car. He was driving home, and he saw a hitchhiker, and he stopped, and he picked the guy up, and he said, Hi, my name is Tony Campalo, and the guy said, My name is Charlie. The very next exit, off-ramp, Campalo went off the off-ramp, headed the opposite direction, and Charlie in the other seat said, man, why are you getting off the road? I was hitchhiking that direction. And he says, because you're leaving your family, your wife and your children this morning, that's why. Your name's Charlie, isn't it? And he said, yes, right, right, that's what I'm doing. And this guy just leaned against the door and just stared at the guy driving the car and how amazed he was when Gampalo took him right to his house in the silver trailer a mile down the road on the right from the university got out of the car and he went in to see his wife. His wife said, you're back, you're back. And he whispered in her ear and finally said, how did you know? And he said, God told me where you live and God told me you were abandoning your wife and your family today. And so Campalo said, you two sit down. I've got something to say to you. You never had a more captive audience. That afternoon on the front porch of the silver trailer, a mile down on the right from the Pentecostal college, he introduced Charlie and his wife into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and Charlie now is a preacher of the gospel today. Prayers, you see, even in their awkwardness, can be very, very powerful. We always ask the best of someone, we might would say to a professional golfer, would you teach me how to putt? Or the friend who's a financial analyst, would you teach me how to invest, we might say. And to our friend who's a librarian, would you teach me how to do research, we might ask. We ask someone what they're best at to teach us how to do it like they. The disciples said to Jesus, Lord, 
Would you teach us how to pray? Prayer was so crucial in the life and ministry of our Lord. Disciples heard and witnessed the power of his prayers and they wanted Jesus to teach them to pray as he prayed. Haddon Robinson rightly observes, as we read the New Testament, we discover that prayer in the ministry of our Lord was absolutely crucial. For us, prayer is the preparation for the battle. But to him, prayer was the battle itself. For Jesus, prayer was like running the marathon and the ministry was going to receive the gold medal. Prayer was like taking the final examination and ministry was like going to receive the diploma. In what part of the ministry of our Lord did he shed the great drops of blood? It wasn't in Pilate's hall, was it? It wasn't climbing up Golgotha's hill, was it? But rather, the most agony our Lord ever had was in the Garden of Gethsemane. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us with strong cryings and tears, Jesus made his petitions to God. If we had been there during his hour of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, we might have said, if he behaves like this when he's simply praying, what's he going to do when the soldiers really arrive? We might have looked over at the three disciples he took to the inner portion of the garden and said, well, look at them. They found peace in the midst of this turmoil, and why can't Jesus be like they are? But the reality is, when the crisis came, Jesus went to the cross in triumph and his three friends fell back and fell away. While they were sleeping, Jesus was praying earnestly and fervently. I'm very cautious when it comes to teaching people about prayer. I think sometimes in the spiritual realm, the more complicated we make things, really, the more destruction we do. Remind the mother who left her child with her mother, Granny, and went off to a three-day prayer seminar and came back after three days to pick up her four-year-old daughter. And her daughter had to climb over her big, thick prayer journal and her big, thick prayer textbook. And her little girl said, Mommy, have you been to school? Oh, well, I've been to a three-day seminar learning how to pray. And the four-year-old said, well, that's odd, Mommy. I already know how to pray. I just talk to God, and he talks to me, and I thought you already knew how to pray, too. Well, the reality of prayer is one of the simplest things. I didn't say an easy thing, but it's a simple thing. We ought to come to God as a creature would come before its creator. We are to honor that God is so different than we are, that he is holy and righteous and good. And that we ourselves do not belong in the shadow of the Almighty, much less taking a place at the foot of his throne. God knows our hearts. He knows our desires. We need, as we come to God, to speak to someone that we admire so much and someone who loves us so much and has our very best interest in mind. The little girl is right. We already know how to pray. 
This morning, I approached this topic of realizing those of us who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we already know how to talk to him for he's our savior, our redeemer, our father, and our friend. Well, look at verse one of chapter 11. And it came about that while he was praying in a certain place, after he'd finished, when the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples to pray. A disciple was eavesdropping on the prayer of his teacher, Jesus. He was impressed by the fact that Jesus had such intimate communication with God. And so when Jesus finished his prayer, the servant said to his master, Lord, I want you to teach me. I want to be able to pray like you're praying. He realized that Jesus' prayer was so much more effective than his own. Lord, give us a paradigm. Give us a pattern. Teach us how we too ought to pray. And Jesus responded, look at verse 2. When you pray, pray like this. And then he gives us what we call the Lord's Prayer. I might rename it the Disciples' Prayer because he's teaching the disciples how they ought to to pray. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. The first thing we learn from our Lord in this paradigm of prayer is that we are pray to a particular person and only one person. We are to pray to God, our Father. Now, a Jewish worshiper in that day would never have addressed God by the name Abba, which is a familial term. It's a term of endearment. It comes across like an English translation of daddy. It would have been absolutely unthinkable. It had not been done before that when you approach the heavenly father that you would call him Abba or, or daddy. The word they would have used was Abinu, a more formal father. A word full of reverence. But Jesus taught his disciples that they had such an intimate relationship with God the Father, they could call him Daddy. They could call him Abba, a term of intimacy with a familial flair. We learned that we're praying to someone with whom we have a father-son, a father-daughter relationship. We're reminded we're speaking to the sovereign Lord of the universe, the cosmos, who's willing to move heaven and earth in sincere, reasonable prayer from his followers. Prayer for us should never be a mechanical duty, but a wonderful opportunity to develop a loving and caring relationship with our Abba, our Father, the most important person in our lives. And yet, lest we lose reverence by calling him daddy, notice the next word, hallowed, or make holy your name. We pray, hallowed be your name. We're remembering God's character, that he is other than we, that God is holy and righteous and good. And we promise not to try to whittle him down to size or put him in our hip pocket or manipulate him. God, in my life, let you be honored God, may you be revered. God, may you be respected. As a people of God and as a children of God, 
We're not praying to an unknown higher power like some people pray. We are praying to our father, our daddy, our Abba. We are praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're praying to the God who has created all that is. We're praying to the God who's, who sustains us. We're praying to the God who in the person of Jesus has redeemed us. We're praying to the God who will come again for his church and for his people. When you pray, pray to your Abba and let his name be holy or hallowed. Second thing he says, thy kingdom come. Or as Matthew adds, thy will be done. Not only are we to pray to only one particular person, we're to pray for the program of God. Not just a person, but that person's program. The Bible teaches us that God is moving human history to a particular place. That it's linear. That God is working out his will, his kingdom, his way. We're looking forward to the day when heaven and earth are redeemed. They're joined together into one when Christ returns. We want the will of God, the program of God, the kingdom of God to come. All of creation longs and all of us look for the will of God, the kingdom of God to be done. Let your divine rule come on earth just like it is in heaven. Oh God, we're saying... We want you to have your way in the hearts of men and women. Your kingdom come. Have you ever thought about it? Do you really want God to answer all your prayers with yes? Some of the very best prayers you've ever prayed, God has said no to. And you look back and you say, thank you, God, for saying no. When I really, really longed for you to give me a yes. Your kingdom, God. Your way, God. Not my kingdom, not my way, but your kingdom and your way. If God answered some of your prayers with a yes, you would be absolutely miserable. Ask not for your own will. Ask not for your own way. But rather ask for God's will and God's way. Oh, Daddy, your kingdom, your way, your will be done. Now, some of you have the difficult task of taking preschoolers with you to the grocery store. And the older they get, the more input they want on what goes in the basket. Have you noticed that? When they're really little, they're just sleeping through there. When they get older, they recognize sugary and sweet things and they want to give you a little advice. Can you imagine one day saying to your four-year-old, you know, today is just going to be your day at the grocery store. We're going to eat all week whatever you put in the cart. You just go through here, you pick it out, baby, and that's what we're going to eat. How many of you think you'd get broccoli in your shopping cart if you did that? It wouldn't be broccoli, would it? It would be brownies. How many of you think you would get a, a gallon of milk in a, in a deal like that? You wouldn't get any milk. You'd get milk duds at the cash register. You wouldn't get any carrots to be sure. You'd get carrot cake because it had icing on it. Could you imagine that's the way life would be if God just took us through life and said, you pick out whatever you want. We would pick out things that would absolutely destroy us. Sometimes God tells us no 
Just like sometimes, though not often these days I've noticed, parents tell their children, no. God's destiny for each one of us is salvation to come through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord. That's our destiny. That's his will and his way for our lives. And sometimes when his sovereign plan collides with our earthly plan, a decision must be made as in regard to who is going to be in charge of our journey here on earth. God must choose between your earthly passion or his heavenly plan, your salvation. Which one do you hope he chooses? Well, me too. A person, Abba, a program, thy kingdom come. And then thirdly, he says, notice God is your provider. Give us each day our daily bread. In that culture, it would have been grain. It would have been bread. In another culture, he might have said, give us our daily rice or pasta, whatever sustains us. They found an ancient papyri, an old sheet of writing paper and antiquity. And on that piece of paper, it was a grocery list. It was an ancient woman's ancient grocery list. And beside each perishable item, she had epiousios, which means a day's provision. We have freezers and we have canning. We have all sorts of ways to preserve food. But in antiquity, all you could buy at the market was a day's worth. For tomorrow, it would be bad. Think of everything being a banana in your household. You can't make those things last. Everything was a banana. You just buy enough for today. Right there, the lady wrote as she went to the market, Epiousios, the word here in the text, give me a day's provision it makes us be reminded that God is provider of our daily bread and our daily food. Oh, God, give me enough for today. It's a blessing. Give us our daily bread. Frederick Beekner wrote, there's a restaurant in a city somewhere, a sort of quick lunch place with no tablecloths on the tables and just a ketchup in the mustard jars sitting there. It's raining outside, and a man folds his umbrella and comes into the side door. Another man glances up from the sports pages as he sits there at the place. Two teenagers are at a table for six, and it's getting crowded in there, and one of them has an unlit cigarette in his mouth. And all of them in the restaurant are staring at the same thing, which is an old woman and a small boy who are sharing a table with the teenagers. Their heads are bowed, and they're saying, grace. The people watching them watched in dazed fascination. The small boy's ears stick out like the handles of a jug. The old woman's eyes are closed, and she's got on an old hat. Her hair is untidy. It's all tucked under the hat. The people are watching. You feel that they may have been part of a world like that one day, but they aren't any longer through the plate glass window, the rain. The city looks dim and monstrous and industrial. And the old woman and the boy are saying grace there. And for a moment, the place is silent. It's unfathomable, the stillness. The watchers are watching something that they've all but forgotten or probably forget soon again when the moment passes. 
They could have been watching creatures from another planet to watch this old woman and the boy thank God for their daily bread. The old woman and the boy in their old-fashioned clothes praying their old-fashioned prayer are leftovers from a day that has long ceased to be provision. Thank you, God, for daily provision. Fourthly, pardon. And forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. These two are linked together and you see the conjunction between them. Give us our daily bread and forgive us daily too. Our stomachs remind us that we need the daily bread, but our conscience needs to remind us that every day we need the grace, the pardon, and the forgiveness of God. Augustine called this the terrible petition. For it's not just forgive our sins, but also help us forgive the sins of those around us. There's a link between the way that God forgives me and the way that I forgive you. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive the sins of everyone indebted to us. When we ask for pardon, we are admitting that there is pollution in our lives. And we admit that the more we understand about ourselves, the more we forgive the foibles of those around us. You see, how close to blasphemy it is to come to God and say, you who are holy, forgive me. I'm the one that's sinful, but I won't forgive those who have wronged me. You can't play the equation that way. What you're actually praying is this, Lord, you deal with me in the way, the same way that I have dealt with others. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It is yoked together, God's forgiveness for you and you, your forgiveness for others and your life. And then notice, finally, protection. And lead us not in temptation. The final P of the prayer is protection. Lead us not into temptation. We certainly know the Lord doesn't lead us into temptation. And we are certainly capable of getting there all by ourselves, aren't we? Lord, don't even, even let me get close to sinning today. You know, the reality is we don't want to admit it, but sometimes we actually like temptation. We don't want to fall into the well of enslaving sin. We enjoy dancing around the rim and tiptoeing around the edges. We fantasize about the temptation itself. What would it be like to be able to, to dance and not have to pay the orchestra? We want the excitement of temptation, but we don't want the consequences of sin. We want to live in that in-between world of not jumping into the ocean and yet we don't mind filling the mist of the sea on our face. Jesus says, if you pray correctly, you'll say, don't even let me get close. Oh Lord, when I, give, when I have the inclination to sin, don't give me the opportunity. And when I have the opportunity to sin, don't let me have the inclination. Pray for protection. John the Apostle tells us that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. With every temptation, kill, steal, and destroy is all that 
the evil one wants to do to you and your family. Oh, don't let me even come close to temptation today. Lord, your prayers seem different than mine. Could you teach me how to pray? First of all, he says, remember, you're praying to your father, your, your Abba, your, your daddy, our father who is in heaven. And yet as close as you are to him, as intimate as that relationship is, you remember that his name is to be made holy. Hallowed be your name. And then you pray not only to a person, but for his program, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. And then God, I realize you're the provider. Give me today my daily bread. And then seek his pardon. Lord, just like you forgive me, I'm going to forgive those who are in my life. Your pardon. And then finally, his protection. Keep me from the power of the evil one. Samuel Chadwick once said, the one concern of the devil is to keep us from praying effectively as believers. He's not worried about our Bible studies as long as they're without prayer. He's not worried about our religion and our worship as long as it is not undergirded by fervent changing prayer. He laughs at our toll and our good deeds and he mocks our wisdom. And yet the evil one trembles when we get on our knees and pray. Prayer is not the preparation for the battle. It is the battle itself. Lord, could you teach me? Could you teach us how to pray? Oh God, even now we realize all that you've done for us. Maybe there's someone here in this room or someone live streaming or watching on television today and her prayer, his prayer would be, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Today would be their day to pray that all important prayer. Oh God, I, I'm a sinner and I need a savior and I ask you to come and abide in my life and forgive me and be my Lord. Well, God, maybe there are others today who need to come and be a part of this wonderful church that holds high your word, engages our hands and our feet in expanding your kingdom. God, maybe there's some of us who've been running away from you and our prayer life has been dry and ignored and we've not come to the one who's our best friend, our father, who's not been before his throne in prayer. We've been building our own kingdoms.